1 Samuel chapter 12. I'm just going to read verses 19 through 25. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with your whole heart. And do not turn after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. I'm sorry, just struck standing here, how much I miss having something firm to hold on to. Andy can't make fun of me for tipping the music stand back and forth if I'm holding on to something solid. Last week, we discussed chapter 12, and we looked at it as a whole, uh, taking as our theme the importance of remembering. Israel had forgotten her God. She had forgotten his past provision, his protection, and as a result, when a new threat came knocking in the form of Nahash, king of the Ammonites, she ran looking for a human savior. Nonetheless, there was hope. God doesn't demand that you come to him from a point of perfection. That would be a little futile, wouldn't it, if God waited for you to be perfect before you could come to him? Rather, he invites you and even demands you to come from where you are right now. So though the people had sinned grievously, Samuel can say to them in verses 20 and 21, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. What grace, what mercy, even in this moment of national rebellion, Samuel can hold forth the hope that God will indeed accept his people if they trust in him, rather than in vain and empty things. That's a hope each of us need when we sin. For to sin is to trust in vain and empty things rather than in the Lord God. This hope can be hard to believe, though, can't it? That, and that hard to believeness is it's almost upped when you add Samuel's faithfulness to the people. It can be hard to believe how faithful Samuel was. He promises not only that God will listen to their prayers, but that he himself will continue to pray for them and to instruct them. Uh, as I was thinking about this this week, it reminded me of a story from American history. Uh, in the year 1750, Jonathan Edwards, who was a famous Congregationalist, preacher, theologian, philosopher, he was actually the first president of Princeton Seminary or Princeton University, uh, which contains a seminary. He was fired by his church in the year 1750 after serving them for over 20 years. There were a number of precipitating factors, including some botched pastoral decisions on his part. There were long-standing rivalries with certain families in the church. But the issue that ultimately caused for him to be removed from his pastorate 
was his insistence that only those who actually professed faith in Jesus Christ should be admitted into church membership and welcomed at the Lord's table. So basically for saying what I said this morning about the Lord's Supper, he lost his job where he'd been for over 20 years. Stop and think about that. One of the most famous preachers in the 18th century was fired for saying you have to be a Christian to take the Lord's Supper. What makes this story all the more remarkable, though, is what comes next. Because, you see, he was a pastor in rural western Massachusetts, which at that time was the frontier. And there were not many preachers to come by. So for over a year, after being fired by the church, the church continued to ask him week by week to come back and preach every Sunday. It's like, we, we don't like you, we don't want you to be our pastor, but you, could you come like preach another 60 or 70 times? That'd be great. Sometimes a leader can be totally rejected and mistreated by those they lead and nonetheless continue to love and serve them because of their commitment not only to the people, but to God. So I want to zero our focus in this morning on verse 23. 1 Samuel 12, 23. It says, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. As we focus on one specific verse, I want our framing question to be, who is this man in the gap? What characterizes Samuel's leadership in this verse? As we walk through, uh, I'm just going to kind of hang our thoughts around three eyes of impulse, intercession, and instruction. And I also want to ask this question. Do these things point beyond Samuel and teach us about someone greater? So first, impulse. Now, maybe I should explain my use of the word impulse before we get too far, because when we think of impulse, maybe you jump straight to the idea of a, a sudden urge or a desire, and the way we would use it if we mean that someone acted on impulse or we made an impulse purchase. It, it's something that came upon you suddenly, and then you reacted to that urge. But there is another definition for the word impulse, which is the one I'm using here. It's that which is a driving or motivi motivating Force. As we look at 1 Samuel chapter 12, if we look at Samuel here, we should ask, what is his motivating force? What's driving him? Now put yourself in his shoes. He's been faithfully serving this people decade after decade, seeing God mercifully grant deliverance from their enemies time after time, and even here seeing him gently move the people through the process of selecting a king. God has been so kind to these people. And, and he's been there through it all, leading them. And then the people reject God. But they not only reject God, they do so in a way as to leave Samuel as the odd man out. He has to be replaced at the top of the human pecking order. So Samuel's got every reason, humanly speaking, to ditch out on these people. If his driving or motivating force is selfishness, if his primary impulse were to please himself, then leaving these people behind would be no big deal. But notice the beginning of verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. What's his impulse here? What's his why behind the action? Well, Samuel doesn't want to sin against the Lord. Or to put it in more positive terms, his desire, his aim, his impulse is to please God. 
And if God has given Samuel the task of serving this nation, how could he give up on that simply because he got his feelings hurt? In, in his commentary, Dale Ralph Davis says, Yahweh also displays that grace in appointing servants who make the welfare of his people their preoccupation. If the rejected God refuses to forsake his people, how can his rejected servant do so? This is precisely the sort of leader we want, isn't it? Like, this is the kind of leader everybody's looking for. Someone focused on the good of the people. Someone who comes not simply to prop themselves up or to stroke their own ego, but who instead is bent on doing what is most beneficial for those in their charge. Where, where do we see that kind of leadership most clearly exemplified? I would submit to you that while Samuel's leadership is highly commendable, highly commendable, and we should long for leaders today who hold to this same impulse of please God, not self, his leadership is but a shadow of the one in whom leadership finds its true substance. So I want to direct your attention to Isaiah 53. Probably not the first place people think of with a leadership for a leadership passage. But Isaiah 53, I just want to read beginning in verse 3. We'll read on down through verse 5. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he's pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy is one to be despised, rejected, and crushed. For his own sins? No, for the sins of the people. And this is clearly Jesus' own conception of his ministry on earth. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, James and John have just come and asked to be seated in the most powerful places in Jesus' kingdom, one at the left and one at the right hand. And Jesus says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who's the greatest leader to ever live? It's Jesus of Nazareth, eternal God in flesh. And what was his driving impulse? To serve the Father by serving his chosen people. John 5.19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. This brings us to our next point, is intercession. Where does this desire to please God lead? Samuel says, back in our text, 1 Samuel 12, verse 23. 
Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Samuel sees that a key part of his calling is to pray for the people. To stand between the people and God and to intercede on their behalf. It's, it's a key duty that he has. And we see him doing it all the way through. Going back to chapter 8 when the people first asked for a king. His first impulse to, is to take that, that request from the nation and to go to God with it. To go talk to God about what they've asked for. He goes looking for divine help and guidance. Now remember... This is also specifically what the people had asked him to do in verse 19. When they realized the weight, the depth, the, the totalizing nature of their sin, they say, pray for your servants that we may not die. I think we should be encouraged that this is the people's response. Have you ever been in sin, either feeling like you fell into it unknowingly and you just can't find your way out, or simply because you chose to willfully disobey God, and you now see the horrible consequences of it. There's a temptation in that moment to be hardened. To pull in Adam and Eve and start sewing fig leaves together and playing the blame game. Somebody else is at fault. Or, there's even the temptation to just embrace your sin as your core identity. This is who I really am. And to try to forge along ahead without God. This is what happens so often in the course of people walking away from the Lord. That there's a particular sin that either becomes more precious to them than God. Or simply seems impossible to overcome. And so walking with God and being confronted by that over and over. Being confronted by the sinfulness of that sin becomes incredibly inconvenient. So there's a drift. A drift away from reading the Bible, a drift away from prayer, a drift away from the church. Times like this, times of struggle and sin, are when we are most tempted to isolate, and it's when we most need others. We need someone to stand in the gap for us and pray for us that we may not die. Christian, do you know that in those times Jesus himself is praying for you. In the moment of your deepest weakness, your hardest trial, your most catastrophic failure and sin, then you can know, in that moment you can know that the Son of God prays for you. In Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus is speaking to a very proud Simon Peter. And this is what he says, verse 31 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Did you hear what happened there? Satan wanted to sift Peter. And instead of Jesus saying, no, you cannot sift Peter. Or even praying that Peter would perfectly resist and, and flee from the devil's temptation. Instead, Jesus prays that Peter's faith would not fail. Peter would fail. His action in denying the Lord three times was utterly shameful. But unlike Judas, who 
failed and then despaired and killed himself afterwards, Peter's faith does hold. Peter failed, but Peter's faith did not fail. He does turn and he strengthens the church. Why was he able to do this? What was the difference? Jesus prayed for him. Hebrews In Hebrews 7, the author is speaking of the superior priesthood of Jesus. How he's better than all of the Old Testament priesthood, even the individual priests in the Old Testament. Think of men like Aaron or even Melchizedek. And, and the author is telling us that Jesus is so much better. And all the high priests who come after that, Jesus is better than all of them. His priesthood is superior to theirs. And in Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 23, it says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you hear that? For those who draw near to God through Christ, Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Which is to say, no matter how bad you've blown it, no matter how far from God you feel right now, no matter what you have done wrong, if you will turn from those worthless things and trust in Jesus as your only hope before the Father, Jesus himself prays for you. The one who paid the price of his life on Calvary's tree is pleading your case before the Father. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding. For us. Thirdly, instruction. As we bring our attention back to 1 Samuel 12, we see that praying isn't the only ministry Samuel has. In the second half of the verse, we read, And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. And of course, this is exactly what Samuel's been doing this entire chapter. He has instructed them in the right way by reminding them of God's prior faithfulness. He has instructed them in the right way by rebuking them for their sinful rebellion. And he has further instructed them in the right way by urging them to stay with God and not give themselves over to vain and empty idols. And again, this is an area for which Samuel is to be commended and followed today by those who would serve God's people. And yet this is another area where, as good as he was, Samuel was but a shadow of the true teacher of God's people who was to come. Jesus came into the world as the very word or speech or thought or self-disclosure of God. John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In his ministry, Jesus spoke with an absolute and unquestionable authority. Uh, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, after that sermon concludes, we read these words in Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What astonished the crowds? It's not how wonderful they think his teaching is. Much of the Sermon on the Mount would have been 
deeply offensive to the people, and it would be deeply offensive to us if we actually read it carefully today. You sometimes hear people refer to Jesus as like a great moral teacher, and you just say, you never even read it. You don't have a clue what he said. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you would throw the book across the room. That, that's my inclination when I read some things in the Sermon on the Mount. They're deeply offensive to our human, sinful human nature. It's not, it's not how learned Jesus is that shocks the people, not how many times he's quoting other rabbis, how he's got the Mishnah down. No, what, what has their attention, what astonishes them, is Jesus' authority. Jesus, the Son of God, spoke the word of God with absolute authority. And it is this authoritative word from God that each of us needs to come to God. It's what we need to understand ourselves rightly before him. Hearing his word is a prerequisite to believing in him and being saved. And being taught by his word is the basis on which we as believers are to build our lives. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 8, We read these words. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He's speaking to the Father here. It's a, it's a prayer. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Skipping down to verse 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus saw as a key part of his earthly ministry the giving to his people the words of the Father. And we see from places like John 14, 25 and following, alongside texts like 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4, that this work continues today through the ministry of the Holy Spirit speaking via the written word of God. Jesus continues to instruct his people in the good and the right way. So as we move toward wrapping this up, I, I think the most important thing for us to see when we look at a verse like 1 Samuel 12, 23, is that such a leader, one whose impulse is to honor the Father, one who prays for the people, and one who instructs the people, is not something relegated to the dustbin of ancient Israelite history. We need to see that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have that kind of leader, and it is Jesus himself. He is that great leader. He is the man in the gap. But is there something for us to take away personally in how we look for leaders in the church and how each of us, as even people as lay people, people in chairs or the pews, as it were, is there something for us to take away? I think so. First of all, and God does set up human leaders. And in the church, we should have leaders who, like Samuel, are not the perfect son of God. They're not Jesus. But they do strive to imitate his humble and servant-minded leadership. Who seek not to bind heavy loads that they are unwilling to lift a finger towards helping with, like the Pharisees. But rather, who will patiently and persistently pray for and instruct the people. That, that's essentially the role of a Christian pastor. Pastor, My job description 
is not to literally stand between the congregation and God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I'm not your mediator. But, but my role is to come to him as the shepherd of the people and plead that the chief shepherd, Jesus, would be at work in his people. That's what First Peter 5 would say. And, and to come to you and open up God's word and to teach clearly that, that we might all hear what he has to say. This is what the apostles say they'll dedicate themselves to in Acts 6-4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So that's my role, and I want you guys to hold me accountable to that. Like That's what my job is, and if I start getting too tied up in other things, just slap me around a little bit. Like, hey, well, <laughs> I saw in Acts 6-4 your job description. But I don't want you to feel left off the hook in this text either. Though the direct application, I, I believe, is to pastors and church leaders, congregations have a part to play as well. First of all, congregations should look for this kind of leadership. Not the things that the world typically looks for and values. Charm, good looks, great speaking ability, charisma, whatever. Secondly, though we, we need to get our arms around this reality. As New Testament believers, we have all been given a ministry of praying for one another and ministering the word to one another. Every single one of us. In Ephesians 6.18, Paul instructs the believers to be praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul is saying... Part of being a Christian is praying for other Christians. Now, by all the saints, I think he's looking like out across the world, but surely that has to begin with those whom you know personally have close connection to in the local church. What about ministering the word? Well, last week we looked at Colossians 3.16. And in Colossians 3.16... We are told, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we looked at that verse last week in the context of singing, but I don't think the principle needs to be limited to just singing to one another. Do you, do you challenge one another from God's word? I know some of you are pretty faithful at doing that. But nothing is more encouraging to me as the minister of the word than when I hear other people ministering the word to each other. That, that is my great joy is to hear that happening. I, I hope what we see in these verses is that we don't just get benefits from being part of the church, though we certainly do. We kind of focused on that last week. But we also gain in becoming part of a church responsibility for one another. And that's that responsibility, even, is part of the privilege of being a Christian. Following Christ can be genuinely hard at times. But with other believers in our lives to lift us up in prayer, pointing us to God's word, and reminding us that Jesus himself is on our side, life will not drown us. We may fall, but when we turn, we can strengthen the brothers because the Lord Jesus himself is with us. So in conclusion, I think we should take hope. Samuel told the people in verse 22 that the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
And Peter picks that same language up and applies it to the church in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, where he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We receive mercy through the blood of Christ alone. And he has been pleased to bring us into his people. So when you fail, when you fall, know this. Jesus loves you. Jesus is praying for you. And he will gladly instruct you in the right way. So forsake all the worthless gods and trust in him alone. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in Christ we have someone to stand in the gap for us. The, the one mediator we need between you and ourselves is Jesus. Help us to trust him, to follow him, to hear his instruction, and to take great joy and comfort and peace in knowing that he himself prays for us, interceding on our behalf to you. We pray these things in his name.